0: Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 12, Battle of Okinawa, Part 2. I am your host Spartan. This is Part 2 of a two-part series, so if you're tuning in for the first time, please stop here and go back to Episode 11. As mentioned in Episode 11, we will again be without Walla for this episode. This is the final episode of this two-part series, and we will have Walla back with us next week for Episode 13, which I will tell you just a little bit more about at the close of this episode. All right, let's get at it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your Lickies and Chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. As a reminder to our listeners, if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, as well as the HardTack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found through our link tree listed in the episode description. Or you can just search HardTack Pod, that's one word, on any of those platforms, and you'll find us there. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with comments questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Last week, we went into detail about both the Japanese and American leadership, force composition and available resources, operational concepts, and the initial amphibious assault. We left off with the American preliminary advance from the Hagushi Beaches to the Yontan and Kadena airfields, both of which were captured without incident by American forces. The much-anticipated Japanese surprise attack finally manifested in the form of an air attack carried out by some 300 Japanese planes, which succeeded in sinking two American destroyers, a minesweeper, and two ammunition ships, along with an LST. It was in the initial week of the battle that the Japanese Combined Fleet initiated a naval battle with the American Task Force 58, an overwhelming victory for 58, and a devastating loss for the Imperial Japanese Navy. The Yamato and Yahagi were sunk, along with 4 destroyers, all at the cost of just 10 American planes. Here again is an example of the 32nd Army and Japanese Imperial Headquarters failing to coordinate in a combined arms offensive. The disjointed ground, aerial, and naval attack of understrength forces made any offensive action a waste of manpower and material, and only served to further weaken Japan's strength. The failed attack on Task Force 58 was a boon for the Americans, as it ensured that 10th Army and the Marines on the ground continue to receive naval artillery support in the weeks to come. And we'll see that play out as we move through this episode. So let's pick up with Japanese offensive action in the face of continued American advance towards the Shuri Line. The conflicting personalities of General Cho and Colonel Yahara began to clash within the first week of the Battle of Okinawa, and it was a determining factor in the Japanese character battle. Colonel Yahara and his level-headed approach broke from Japanese tradition early on in planning the battle as one of attrition, or Chikusen, a yard-by-yard bloodbath. General Cho, enthusiastic and detached from reality, overrode his subordinate at every opportunity and advocated for offensive action, as demonstrated in the planning and launch of a Japanese offensive that occurred on April 12th. In accordance with Japanese tradition, the attack was designed as a surprise night attack on American positions. And if you go back about 40 years in Japanese military history, you'll come across the Russo-Japanese War. The Imperial Japanese Army implemented night attacks regularly against Russia in this war and were overwhelmingly successful in doing so. So much so that night attacks became doctrine. What Japan failed to account for was the strength and tactical acumen of their current enemy. While Russian forces were soundly beaten by Japan between 1904 and 1905, roles were reversed in 1945. The Japanese believed that the American positions they were to attack were underdeveloped. Yohara was vehemently opposed to the plan and argued it would only waste valuable lives needed to support the Japanese strategy of attrition. Remember, Okinawa was not a battle Japan intended to win. It was only meant to delay the American invasion of the mainland for as long as possible. Yohara never lost sight of this goal. However, Cho won over General Ushijima. The offensive plan was to infiltrate American positions by sending troops in boats offshore to sail around the Americans, make an amphibious landing, and attack from their rear. Once the attack began, entrenched Japanese forces on the front line were to then attack in full while the rear attacking forces severed supply lines and became entangled with the American forces. The entanglement was critical. Close air support and offshore firepower could not fire on Japanese troops without also risking the lives of the 10th Army troops. The attack was a colossal failure. Most infiltration teams failed in their most critical task, that of infiltration. However, one amphibious team did make their landing. The entire battalion landed a mile behind American lines, but were quickly detected and ultimately decimated. The 22nd Infantry Regiment and three reserve battalions, supported by the 62nd Infantry Division, attacked American lines near the Ginowan Road in an uncoordinated display of ineptitude that cost the 23rd, and 272nd Battalions, half of their men, and the 273rd Battalion was entirely annihilated. Yohada's unheeded warnings proved true. The 32nd Army's failure on the 12th of April ensured that the planned American advance against the Shuri Line, scheduled for 19 April, was carried out by 24th Corps against the smarting 62nd Division, which had lost a combined two battalions worth of men. General Tro and his supporters had anticipated the offensive by the 24th Corps, which led to his decision for an offensive action, trying to thwart that. However, Cho's poor judgment and the poor execution of the attack only served to weaken 62nd Division by the time of the anticipated offensive. 24th Corps made slow progress against the flagging 62nd Division, which had lost only half a mile of terrain to the Americans during the first four days of of the offensive slow bloody advance to find the 24th corps efforts to break the 62nd division which had to be reinforced by 24th division after losing half of its manpower all the way into the first week of may the character of the offensive was as expected by colonel Yahara. victory was not the objective rather yard by yard battle of attrition with an operational goal of inflicting heavy loss and delaying american operational goals was the intent Conflict over tactics continued between the 32nd Army's command staff and led to another tense meeting called by General Cho on April 29th. Once again, the flamboyant general advocated for offensive action, having not learned from his mistakes. Holding to the unrealistic belief that offensive action might break American lines, put a halt to American advance, and the defeat of the 32nd Army, General Cho pressured command staff into another agreement. And again, another offensive was planned, this time for May 4th. This operation also introduced for the first time in the battle the concept of honorable death attack. The offensive was to be fought to the last man's standing. As the senior operations officer, Colonel Yahara, nevertheless, was tasked with and executed the planning of the operation. The initial phase of the plan began in the same fashion as the failed April 12th attack, with an amphibious landing on both the east and west coast of southern Okinawa. The intent was to land two regiments behind American lines. 62nd Division, still battered from the April 12th failed offensive, was tasked with maintaining its position on the Japanese left to serve as the offensive anchor, while the more robust and battle-ready 24th Division provided an offensive initial attack. In the early hours of May 4th, two regiments succeeded in amphibious landings behind American lines, while 24th Division began its front attack. In the early hours of May 4th, two regiments succeeded in an amphibious landing behind the American lines, while 24th Division began its frontal assault. The 32nd Army could claim but one success following the offensive, and it served no operational purpose. The first battalion of 32nd regiment under the command of Captain Ito Koichi abandoned the senseless Japanese frontal attack and exercised a disciplined initiative in personally conducting recon of American positions. Intelligence gathered from his observation of the American positions enabled his forces to successfully traverse the Ginowan-Shuri road and occupy the Tanabaru escarpment, the only Japanese gain during the entire offensive. The 27th tank regiment 26th, and 23rd Engineer Regiments, these were the regiments that executed the amphibious landings, and the 24th and 62nd Division all suffered terrible losses in manpower. The two amphibious landings were botched due to poor intelligence and landed them in vulnerable locations. They were easily overpowered by American forces. 24th Division's attack had been forced to a defensive halt, and 62nd Division continued in its habit of stationary placement at the cost of its own men. As the offensive ceased on May 5th, just the next day, Lieutenant General Ushijima's forces had been reduced by 7,000. The offensive was the 32nd Army's last major offensive action of the Battle of Okinawa. After two failed offensives championed by General Isamu Cho, the true beginnings of Colonel Yahada's gq actually began. According to Colonel Yahara, he was summoned by Lieutenant General Ushijima at about 6 o'clock on the evening of May 5th. Entering Ushijima's office, Yahara found the commander of 32nd sitting cross-legged on a floor of old tatami mats. Ushijima stated, quote, Colonel Yahara, as you predicted, this offensive has been a total failure. Your judgment was correct. You must have been frustrated from the start of this battle because I did not use your talents and skill wisely. Now I am determined to stop this offensive. I am ready to fight. But from now on, I leave everything up to you. My instructions to you are to do whatever you feel is necessary. End quote. Now, we need to keep in mind that this quote comes from Colonel Yahada's own memoirs. It's impossible to verify the accuracy of the quote. However, we can assume that the actual conversation was close in context, given that Yahada did in fact determine the 30-second strategic and tactical execution of operations, from this point forward and the history shows that. Colonel Yorhara was now faced with the difficult task of implementing his original plan but had to do so while making adjustments after two failed offensives. He summarized the results of the May 4th counteroffensive as follows. 24th division was now down to one-third of its original strength. Artillery group's ammunition supply was nearly exhausted. Two engineer regiments and naval suicide squadrons had been annihilated. The May 4th counteroffensive saw 5,000 Japanese casualties alone. 62nd Division's location placed them in greater danger with the counteroffensive's failure, and finally, prefectural police had determined that both civilian and military morale on Okinawa was down across the entirety of the island. With these major changes in mind, Yohara had to adapt to the ever-changing battlefield situation. The 32nd Army's headquarters still remained at Mount Shuri in the Shuri Hills, as mentioned in Part 1. If we recall, the American amphibious landings uh, went uncontested as 32nd Army leadership looked on from Shuri Castle atop Mount Shuri. Surveying the front lines and the landscape beyond, Yahara came to a realization. Though the Maeda and Nakama Hills, smaller, more narrow, and to the north of Shuri were in American hands, the Shuri Hills could provide an excellent defensive line for the 32nd to hold out and prolong the battle, which was Yahara's intent. That brings us to the Battle of Sugarloaf Hill and the eventual breaking of the Shuri line. The success of Tenth Army in thwarting the Japanese offensive on May 4th was followed by the bloody battle of Sugarloaf Hill on May twelfth. Sugarloaf Hill, or Hill fifty two, was one of several hills in a chain called Amekudai by the Japanese. Yahara determined it to be a critical defensive location on the western edge of the Shurdy Line and so, after the failed attack two days prior, Yahara ordered the 44th Independent Mixed Brigade, or IMB, to fall back to Sugarloaf Hill on May 6th. But what of the bruised and abused 62nd Division? Well, the beatings continued. Left in a precarious position since the 4th, the Arikawa Brigade, on the extreme left of 62nd, was attacked by U.S. Marines. The 62nd Division fell back and attempted to hold a new line, but this fallback position was also quickly assaulted by Marines, who were then in position to attack Amekurai. Yahara, quick witted and calm as always, realized that Amekurai was extremely vulnerable to naval assault from offshore. Another vulnerability was that it rested on a cultivated plateau, and enemy tanks would have had an easy time traversing the landscape to bring heavy fire down on Japanese positions. Yohara ordered a fallback to more defensible hills in the Amikudai Line, specifically that of Sugarloaf Hill or Hill 52. Sugarloaf and its neighboring hills were the last real forward position, shielding 32nd Army's leadership just behind the Shuri Line. 10th Army's objective in capturing Hill 52 was to break through the Shuri Line and force the retreat of 32nd Army further south where they were to make their last stand. The U.S. Marine's 6th Division was tasked with the capture of Sugarloaf Hill. The bloody battle that took place at Sugarloaf may lead one to assume the hill was substantial in size and fortification. However, it only rose to a height of 230 feet and only 50 feet above the northern approaches to its own slopes. Sugarloaf was aptly codenamed It was little more than a cute bump in the road for Marines, but the Japanese had dug into the earthy bump and it was honeycombed with enemy entrenchments. Further, its two sister hills were also honeycombed, and the Japanese created interlocking fields of fire, each slope protected. the slope of a neighboring hill. Colonel Yohada's plan of inflicting the heaviest casualties possible and delaying American advance truly reared its bloody head at Sugarloaf. IJA troops had placed artillery, machine gun nests, and built concrete reverse slope positions that were all interconnected by tunnels, which allowed troops to move between locations undercover and provide support to positions and duress. Japanese defenders among the hills totaled to about a full regiment's worth, so between 1-2,000 to 2,000 men. Ultimately, Sugarloaf was a death trap. Episode 11, Okinawa Part 1, made little mention of the Marines, which was brought to my attention by a moderator of our historical studies community, as well as a retired Marine Corps artillery officer who I will refer to as Ultima. So here we go, Ultima, this one is for you, and for all the Marines out there serving, and who have served, thank you. Captain Owen Stebbins of Company G led the first assault of marines against the hill on 12 May. Initially, light machine gun fire and sporadic artillery contested the approach. However, they rapidly covered ground and moved forward over 900 yards in a very short time. It was as they began ascending the slopes of Sugarloaf that heavy machine gun fire and the steel rain of Japanese artillery pinned down two of the three approaching platoons. Captain Stebbins quickly determined that if he could reach the top of the small hill, he could suppress the enemy's fire and free his men from the assault. With just 40 Marines, Stebbins charged the hilltop and was peppered with machine gun fire in both legs, rendering him immobile. 28 of the 40 Marines were also wounded. However, Stebbin's second in command, Lieutenant Dale Bear, quickly assumed command. With an injured right arm having been shredded from machine gun fire, Bear again charged the top of the hill with the remainder of his still combat-capable Marines. On the way up, he secured a Japanese machine gun. He crested the top of the hill and with one hand laid down heavy fire on Japanese positions. His actions allowed the Penn Marines to retreat to safety and away from Sugarloaf Slopes. Baron Stebbins both were dragged to safety. The initial assault was an overwhelming failure and the first of many. To give everyone a quick idea of what the weeks to follow were like for American Marines in taking the Shuri Hills and advancing towards the Shuri Line, I wanted to share a quote from the newspaper article I mentioned in part one of this series. Private First Class Paul Eisen was a Marine belonging to the 1st Marine Division and fought the entire 82 days on Okinawa. You may have seen a photo of him without realizing it. There is a photo of him dashing across Okinawa's Death Valley, and it is one of the most famous photos of the battle and of the Pacific War. I'll post it in our socials, and I'll also link it in the show notes. From Kevin Lawler's article, Quote, the 1st Marine Division entered the line April 30 near Shuri. Four days later, Ison, called Pop by younger Marines, found himself facing the enemy alone on a hill. Ison is quoted as stating, I was in a hole with one guy, and he said, Pop, let's get out of here. I don't like it. We got out, and a minute later, three Marines... Jumped in just as a mortar hit. I saw arms and legs flying all over the place. End quote. His experience in this one instance gives us an idea of what it was like for the Marines rushing the slopes around Shuri against an enemy they could not see. American forces were likewise engaged in other critical locations along the Shuri line. May 12th and 13th were ripe with costly engagements between the Marines of 6th Division and the defending Japanese forces, which continued to utilize artillery in hindering the Marines' advance. May 14th was no better and the attempted Marine advance again was halted by heavy mortar and artillery fire. The casualties continued to climb for both sides. Two more attacks on the 16th and 17th were executed and also met with failure. The battle for Sugarloaf Hill came to its conclusion as 6th Division Marines really began to make progress on the 18th and 19th of May. After a combined arms assault, artillery and mortar fire were unleashed on the Japanese defenders and American tanks. Yahara's operational acumen again proving true here. Flanked Sugarloaf Hill and fired into the Japanese reverse slope positions. Two platoons of Marines advanced towards the crest along traverse routes and reached the summit. Concurrently, as Japanese defenders fled or died, the bloody battle of Sugarloaf Hill ended on the 19th and resulted in 2662 American Marines killed or wounded. Japanese casualties are unknown. With the capture of Sugarloaf Hill and the occupation of the Anekuide line, The Marines of 6th Division and 10th Army soldiers had been successful in capturing both Sugarloaf Hill and the entirety of the amei line, but Sugarloaf Hill was just one key location in the Shuri line of defense, which was soon to collapse in its entirety for the Japanese. The Japanese High Command had come to grips with the reality of their situation after the failed offensive on May 4th, and the looming collapse of the Shuri Line was now at the forefront of their concerns. General Cho was to no longer have any say in operations, nor did Yahara require his immediate superior's consent and planning. The leadership of 32nd was finally prepared for true GQ Sen. Colonel Yahara followed the instructions of his superior in earnest and took full advantage of the operational autonomy given to him. In weighing available options, Colonel Yahara considered the continued defense of the Shuri Line, However, Imperial headquarters and the command staff of 32nd knew that there was no hope in halting the American advance, yet an option existed that could prevent the premature destruction of the 32nd Army and enable the continued strategy of attrition. An organized withdrawal from the Sherry Line further south to the Keon Peninsula offered several benefits over the few courses of action open to 32nd. Keon was attractive because of the landscape, which provided natural fortifications and towering escarpments. The withdrawal could be further aided by paved roads between Shirley and the intended fallback location. And, more importantly, 24th Division had previously constructed underground fortifications in the Kion Cave system. After some political maneuvering and personality management by Colonel Yahara, withdrawal to Keon was slated for May 29th. The date of withdrawal that Yahara chose proved to be beneficial for the 32nd's withdrawal as visibility was low. Poor weather prevented aerial reconnaissance by American forces, leaving only a rear guard and a banning their positions along the Shuri Line, 32nd Army conducted an orderly retreat to Kion that extended through June 4th. Covering the withdrawal was the ever-abused 62nd Division, along with the 24th Division, which suffered devastating losses in the week-long retreat, but was ultimately successful in enabling the remainder of 32nd Army to relocate to Kion, to begin manning and developing the new and final defensive line. The cost of life between the two divisions during the withdrawal and defense of the Shuri Line Two weeks prior amounted to approximately 20,000 men. Only 20% of the total combat troops battle-ready on Day remained combat-ready on June 4th. As a reminder, Day was April 1st. The 32nd Army's final stand on the Kion Peninsula was largely fought by ancillary personnel, not trained infantrymen. This brings us to the Battle of Kion and 32nd Army's last stand. The Battle of Kion and the breaking of the Kion Line was rapid in execution to that of the Shuri Line, comparatively. However, the Japanese will to fight and focus on attrition remained intact, all under the leadership of Colonel Yahara. The Kion Line, roughly 5 miles in length and 4 miles in depth, was manned and defended by June 3rd. American forces, delayed by the battered Japanese rearguards, had developed an attacking line which began seeking weak points in Japanese defenses by June 6th. The eastern flank of the Kion Line was anchored at Hill 95, and manned by the remainder of the 44th IMB, or Independent Mixed Brigade. 24th Division, the usual offensive weapon of 32nd Army during the Battle of Okinawa, held the front and western flank of the Keyon Line. Somehow, still hanging on by a thread, the 32nd was so weakened by June that the remainder of its forces were held in reserve and placed behind 24th. Hill 95 and the left flank of the Keyon Line fell to the U.S. 7th Infantry Division on June 11th. The collapse of the 32nd's eastern flank placed 24th Division in a vulnerable position, its right flank exposed to American attack. Pressure from the front further threatened the collapse of the Keyon Line's forward defenses. To prevent this, 44th IMB was reinforced with fresh troops from, you guessed it, 62nd Division, which is almost insulting at this point. Though slow progress in reaching the location resulted in 44th IMB's southerly retreat. 24th Division maintained a stoic defense that surrendered only a mile to American advance between 12 and 18 June. However, by the 19th, both flanks of the Keon Line were collapsing inward as the pincer-like American advance crushed the remnants of Japanese resistance on the southernmost point of Okinawa. Locating and removing resistance, really just mopping up scattered resistance groups, continued until June 30th, but the horrific battle was decidedly over on June 21st. The aftermath of the Battle of Okinawa is haunting. The battle was the last and bloodiest battle of the Pacific War, yet it was not intended to be. Casualties for both American forces and the Imperial Japanese Army's 32nd Army were staggering, and included the highest-ranking officers of both ground forces. Lieutenant General Butner of the 10th Army was killed by shrapnel from a Japanese artillery shell on June 18th, mere days before the battle ended, while surveying the forward lines from a hilltop. Lieutenant Generals Ushijima and Cho committed ritual suicide, seppuku, after a large banquet with their staff officers in the early hours of June 23rd, 1945. 32nd Army casualties amounted to 110,071 to include Okinawan conscripts. 10th Army battle casualties totaled 65,631, and another 26,211 were identified as non-battle casualties. The deaths of Okinawan citizens rivaled that of 32nd Army, with over 100,000 civilians dead at battle's end. Colonel Yohara's rational, successful departure from traditional Japanese warfare in defense of Okinawa had unintended effects for Japan. In his expertly guided execution of GQ-sen, Colonel Yohara inadvertently created the circumstances that would influence newly elected American President Harry S. Truman and his decision to abandon the proposal of an invasion of mainland Japan and order the deployment of the atomic bombs. The death toll of American and Japanese militants and that of the citizens of Okinawa were staggering to American war planners and provided a snapshot of what the invasion of mainland Japan, Operation Downfall, would bring. General MacArthur's chief of intelligence during World War II had estimated that as many as 200,000 American uniformed personnel would be killed in the initial half of Operation Downfall, known as Operation Olympic, and the number would rise to 500,000 by the initiation of Olympic's latter half, Operation Coronet. The estimates did not include Japanese militant and civilian casualties. Further consideration was given to time. Allied leadership was anxious for the war to end. The 82-day battle of Okinawa had exceeded predicted time estimates, and as Operation Operation Olympic was anticipated to extend in 1947. The true length of an invasion was of concern. President Truman, new to office and only having learned of the atomic bombs after the death of his predecessor on June 12th, found himself at odds on how to conclude war with Japan. President Truman stated, quote, "I have to decide Japanese strategy. Shall we invade Japan proper or shall we bomb and blockade? That is my hardest decision to date, but I'll make it when I have all the facts." End quote. The conclusion of Operation Iceberg and the resulting casualties provided estimates to war planners and President Truman on the costly strategy proposed in Operation Olympic, and waging the battle of attrition to delay the American invasion of mainland Japan, the command staff and soldiers of the 32nd Army succeeded in preventing the invasion entirely. Imperial headquarters strategic objectives aside, failure to accomplish Japanese war objectives was guaranteed upon Truman's decision to drop the bombs that brought about Japan's unconditional surrender. There we have it. The Battle of Okinawa Parts 1 and 2. There are those that may consider an 82-day battle covered over only two episodes to be lacking, and I honestly can't say that I disagree. However, I hope that I did some justice to the history, but more importantly to Okinawa. Approximately a full quarter of Okinawa's citizens were killed or forced to commit suicide by the 32nd Army during the battle. Without getting too much into Japan's history, Okinawans have not been considered equal or the same as Japanese mainlanders. Feelings are still harbored today among some of the population for the destruction wrought upon them at the hands of their own government during this battle. So, for my friend Takeno Shoko, this two part series is dedicated to you and your family. I hope you enjoyed it. Okay, listeners, next week we have a special episode, and the first of its kind, here on Hardtack. My co-host Walla will be back, and we will be doing our first AWOL episode, where we will present a topic on the fringes of military history. So tune in next week for an AWOL episode. Episode 13, Israel Keys, Soldier, Serial Killer. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.